My mother said that I was self-centered. Really? Anyway, that's enough about her. <laughs> For hip. Hip. Oh yeah. Ah! <laughs> Um, welcome back to For Hip. Uh, yes. I am really excited for this one. I feel like I say that every time, but this yeah. time it's uh, particularly true because we're mm-hmm. going to discuss one of my favorite contemporary directors. Mm-hmm. Dad, will you do the honors of introducing him? It's Michael Bay. Everybody Yay! knows him. Pearl Harbor, gem of a movie. Oh, it's but Paul Thomas Anderson, like you didn't read already. Um, <laughs> the, the, the commonly referred to as PTA. Do we know? I always just call him Paul Thomas Anderson. Personally, I don't call him Paul Anderson because you also have Paul W.S. Anderson, director of... True. What's it called again? This was a bit of a strategic uh, um, acronym placement because I What's thought we film? are going to be saying his name a lot in the next uh, half hour or so. Uh, so I figured if we have a short hand, just it's just Paul. Uh, easier for us. But sure, go I'm for just it. Paul. Paul will be... Yes. Uh, yeah, we know that you mean Paul Thomas Anderson. Yes. When I say PTA, I mean Paul Thomas Anderson. And he's a very lovely guy. I'm glad um, we sorted that out. Yes. Um, <laughs> very lovely guy. Um, oh, I've written down some things. Yes, I have. You Sorry, it's been a so long bad weekend. with the fourth wall. Just oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, I don't, and I'm bad at script reading, but that's that's <laughs> a big part of it. That's why we, we, we have you again. Um, yes, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Everybody knows him. I hope that, 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 but hey, if not, that's okay. We're here to educate you. So this is, this is a really, really a, a great, terrific, revered director who barely sets a foot wrong from the 70s, from California. That's where a lot of his films also take place. Um, didn't go to uh, 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 film school. Well, did for a brief time, but then fluked out and just instead, like uh, some very like Quentin Tarantino, really came to rise during the 90s independent film movement. And he was, together with Tarantino, somewhat of a really a film nerd turned filmmaker. I read somewhere that he left film school because uh, uh, the teacher had said that if you came here to learn about making movies like Terminator 2, then mm-hmm. you should leave. Um, and uh, then he wanted to leave. Yeah, Terminator there are multiple stories about this. Mm. Some will pop up in uh, later on in the show. But hey, I see that somebody had read mm. in. Okay, okay. And well, he's, um, <laughs> he's a frequent collaborator with Johnny Greenwood, for instance, and a lot of people. He, 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 I mean, his last film was a friends and family film, really. Johnny uh, Greenwood um, from, um, that's the musician, right? Yeah. He does the soundtracks. Yeah, and I have a theory regarding Paul Thomas Anderson, at least, that you can uh, divide his filmography in two distinct parts. Mm. Uh, You can, uh, if you do a little bit of film analysis, it's also very easy to pinpoint why these two parts exist. But it's very simple. You have everything up to Punch Drunk Love from 2002, if I'm not mistaken. And then it's There Will Be Blood and Everything That Follows. Okay. And with Licorice Pizza, there's a little bit of a hybrid. But the main difference is uh, the edit and, and pace. All of a sudden, with There Will Be Blood, you you start off with just a, an incredibly different pace than what Punch Drunk Love and Magnolia and Boogie Nights and even Hard Eight had. It's all of a sudden everything a little bit slowed down. 
Huh. Yeah, and it's it's theory. very it's a very simple thing, and all of a sudden his films start to get they they still is wacky and wild in a way, but they they have their their patience about them. You see that in the Master and in Inherent Vice, and you see that in Phantom Thread. You really see, it. and with Licorice Pizza for the first time, he went a bit back to the beginning. So uh, that, that's uh, that's how I. Um, I'm not sure if I agree, but I. I uh, well, I'm it, interested. It, 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 I need to think about it yeah. for a while, uh, but thanks for bringing that it's, up. It's just a, uh, somehow they're different, and I well, and and he's a big proponent of Roger Altman, uh, Robert Altman. Sorry, I'm saying it wrong. Who's also one of my favorite directors, who did these incredible films in the 1970s, where a lot of people talk uh, through each other, and he sound mixed it beautifully well. And the best film award of all time is named after Robert Altman, which is the award for an ensemble cast because and that's something that Paul Thomas Anderson also does really well make these uh, films where all the characters that live in the space of the film seem to also exist out of the film so they had really a life before the film happened and a life after it I if they survive agree. the end so that's that's I think the the, the yeah 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 um good script <laughs> yeah, you you have something to say um <laughs> Yeah, I, I was thinking a bit about how to um, how to introduce him, and, and I I feel like whenever you read about people really loving film or whatever, they they always bring bring up Paul Thomas Anderson, and um, I feel like uh, people that you know I don't really like do it too, and uh, it's always annoying when mm. people you don't like like the same thing that you do, uh, and I feel like he's a bit of a soft boy um, staple. Um, but uh, I mean, I can't help it. That's why I'm here, right? No, no, soft boy. Um, are you a soft boy? Well, I think there are probably a few listeners sitting there, nodding their heads with vigor, just like yes. Okay, <laughs> I guess I don't know you that well yet. But no. uh, we'll get around to that. You I know them, I suppose. Yes. Um, <laughs> anyway, I can't help it if you appropriate my good culture. So uh, I'll just. Um <laughs> But okay, let's go through some trivia. Which I have a fragsy to that will introduce him. So mm-hmm. okay, the, the, these things I have looked up on a number of websites. I did a lot of research, and of course, this is trivia. So some things aren't as black and white. Of the course. director in question might disagree with what I'm saying, but he sure. has said so, sort these sort of things. Before ready, yeah, let's not be crazy nuanced here. Just okay, have some fun with it. Belgium is Anderson. Who is he married to? Oh, uh, uh, Maya Rudolph, yes, from, from SNL. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was kind of surprised the first time, but hey, cool. Do you know what his favorite film of all time is? I feel like I read that somewhere, but no, I don't. Okay, what is it? Then he guesses, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> the treasure of the Sharon Madre. But ah. this is probably also not true. But then again, I watched The Master this week, and there's a scene where he just very much deliberately mimics the style and the imagery. So I was like, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it is clear that he loves Westerns, at least. There is also another story regarding film school and Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm. Uh, oh, that's the rain, by the way, if you're like, yes, we're into entering a little bit more of a... What's it called again? When you talk very softly and you're like... Uh, I don't know what you mean. What's the word? I have no idea what you're talking about. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> he also, uh, th- th- well, do you know why he left film school? And I had two options. Oh, yeah. But you already had the Terminator one. Do you know the other one? Yeah, I do. 
Um, I uh, I read somewhere that he um, he handed in homework, uh, but it wasn't his own. He stole someone uh, something from a Pulitzer Prize winning author. <laughs> I don't remember who it was, uh, and he he didn't get a good grade for it. And no, he, he was got like, a C or something. Like right. <laughs> so they don't recognize talent at that school, and then uh, he left. Yeah. That was the other yeah. one you were looking yeah, for? Yeah, and then the last one. What do you think the f- his favorite film of himself is? Um, hmm. I don't know. I hope... Uh, no, oh. I think it's probably Magnolia. It's The Master. Hmm. So that's why I watched The Master this week, ah. because I was very curious. No, uh, I kind of get why but he said that it's it's uh, it is what it is and it is quite imperfect for it but Mm -hmm. the way we handled it there's so much of me in there and then you have joaquin and then you have philip seymour hoffman doing the the best of the best it also depends all the others when they asked him this question in an interview maybe it was right after he made the master which would make it more inclined later on okay and well and also i mean the master is the first film in 30 years or something that was shot on 65 millimeters it's it's like they invested something in it yeah. d- d- like financially but also just mm-hmm. they, like pff, they had to do it at the same time a lot of people my friends always were like i don't understand the master 65 wasn't it 70 65 it's the I same mean, deal. oh okay but i didn't know they made 65 yeah so the other one being of the last decade that was also shot on 65 was the hateful eight so those are the only two films that did that which is kind of <laughs> remarkable so yeah it looks ridiculously well and it has all these actors in it that i completely forgot about it has amy adams i, I did know that but also jesse plemons who's now yep. uh, really risen Rami malek also forgot about it and laura dern and with laura dern in particular i was like why isn't laura dern in every paul thomas anderson movie because it makes so much sense i completely agree mm. they are both um really really good and they should mm. be working together all the time yeah so but it's, it's paul really thomas anderson if you're listening <laughs> yes <laughs> keep casting <laughs> yes laura dern please thank you yes well, uh, that was my fractie two questions. We went okay. through them a little bit quicker than I. Uh, okay, but oh, great. Uh, hey. that, that leaves us a lot of time to get into uh, the films. Yes, that's good. So we m- each made a top three, and what we're gonna do is uh, we're gonna go through them little si- uh, step by step, mm-hmm. film by film, starting at three. When one of us has a film that the other one has as well, but later on in the top three, then we wave a hand and we'll wait for the discussion to later. And the first two that we'll do, we'll keep a little bit short. And then the, our favorite films will go in a little bit deeper. Uh, and if strategy. you have been listening to For Hip since day one, you already know what number one for me is going to be. So it's much more interesting to listen to Carolina this time because... I'm just going to be very repetitive of the b- delicious, the glorious nature of everything that this... That, I don't mean to be rude, but one. it's extremely <laughs> unlikely that your listeners, A, have listened to everything, and B, have remembered everything you said. So it is totally I, fine to I say it things. every week, I think. Well, I have the feeling that I s- tell... I mean, I mentioned it last episode. I think I know what it is, but uh, oh, we'll have to see. Well, hey... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Caro, what do you have in the number three? <laughs> uh, I uh, I chose Punch Drunk Love. Uh, I, yep. To be honest, I couldn't make a top three because I really love everything I've seen of him. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to, you know, make a bit of a varied uh, thing on the Bobby. Mm-hmm. I like talking about Punch Drunk Love, <laughs> so that's why it made the top three. Cool. 
Yeah, with Adam Sandler. With Adam Sandler, yeah. Uh, one of the things I really appreciate about Paul Thomas Anderson is that I feel like he is just really good at casting. Uh, I mean, obviously he's failed by not incorporating Laura Dern in every film he made, but other than that... She's also uh, too much tied to Lynch. I know, yeah. I'm joking. But still, yeah. I'm not serious, <laughs> yeah. but... Um, I am. <laughs> <laughs> she could be tied to both, I think. Anyway, uh, I think um, there was this interview with Paul Thomas Anderson and, and somebody asked him, like, who would you like to collaborate with next? And he said Adam Sandler, and the reporters all laugh because everybody thinks Adam Sandler is just such a goofball, you know. Uh, he was serious, and it works. And also, right after Magnolia, which is emotionally like yeah. <laughs> three hours of yeah mental, but he handles it really well. Stuff. I think Punch Drunk Love looks amazing. I think it's a very um, anxious film in a really good way, and yes. uh, um, I also think it's a really good story about. Uh, that you have to be yourself because um, there's a love story there and it only works if they're like true to what they're actually like feeling. It's a Superman story as well. That's what I like. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, quite literally, there's a conspiracy theory going around that Punch Drunk Love is actually a story about how Superman came to be because <laughs> in the beginning, he has these, he has those unbreakable things that he wants to sell. He says, unbreakable uh, blackjack or something for a gambling mm. situation and he breaks it. Right. And then at one point he has a magical punch out and he smacks them all. And uh, his colors are blue with a red tie. And uh, there oh are all God. these little nudges. Like it's it's kind of funny. And that that's his lowest lane. And there is a it, it's it, there is more to this. Like you can really get into it, but it's a very funny theory regarding the film. Uh, I have to rewatch it with this focus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks for that angle. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Yeah, I like it too. But uh, I was making pretty much a, a whole rundown of where Punch Drunk Love would be. And even though I think it's a very good film, it's probably at number seven. It's Fair pretty enough. low up and I still love it. So it's... Um, I mean, that's a good sign. But like I said, good. it's not really my number three either. I can't do this. I don't really yeah. like hierarchy in that way. I think they're all different and uh, good in, in their own ways. I only have a problem with his first film. Yeah, Heart Eight. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, because the characters are annoying. And that's... Uh, but yeah, hey, enough about it. I have um, Licorice Pizza mm. at number three. Interesting Be choice. Didn't expect that it one. was my film of the year, of last year. Mm. I can tell that you have been a very active listener to our previous... No, <laughs> not burning you anymore. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, no, Licorice Pizza. Uh, I watched it two times in cinemas, three times in the year, I think. Uh, and for very personal reasons, I think as well, the, the thing with Paul Thomas Anderson's films usually are that when you get like a personal uh, angle to it, that something reflects something of your own life in a direct way, then uh, you can really make them your own. Mm -hmm. And they do open up in a very peculiar way and they start to become, and that's what good movies do always. That's what La Dolce Vita does for me every time I watch it. It's a little bit different for me. Uh, and and it's not because the film is different, but because you are different. And with Licorice Pizza, immediately within the span of a year, it had three different meanings, which was kind of insane. It's also, as a critic had written, which I'm very jealous of the sentence, it's one of the few love stories ever made where uh, time is the only thing that is eventually getting them together instead of pulling them apart. Hmm. And it's 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 it, it's lovely in that way. Uh, Tom Waits is in it. Uh, what's his face again? Uh, Sean Connery. 
Not Sean Connery. <laughs> Not Sean I'm Connery. sorry, I had a very little sleep this weekend. A lot of work. What's his face? Uh, the director, the one who was married to Madonna. See, why do I know that he oh, was married? Uh, uh, Sean Sean Penn is Thanks. hilarious. Yep. Yeah. See, it was a Sean. No Connery, but it was a Penn. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> and and the performances are, are great off the boards. And and I sat down, it was the first film of the year that I saw after the COVID restrictions had been lifted again. And I completely forget that it happened at the end, but I was just like, yeah, nothing's going to top it, I think, this year. that This is phenomenal. Um and well, it's not his best film, <laughs> but it's 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 near perfect. It has a little bit more of a swoosh to it than, for instance, uh, Phantom Thread and Inherent Vice had uh, the films that he made before that. And it, it, so it came back to his seventies roots, more like Boogie Nights. But at the same time, it's it's. I remember exiting the cinema and the first time and walking into uh, a professor of mine and, and discussing it. And I was just like, the, the virtuosity of this is, is insane. I mean, I read an interview uh, with Paul Thomas Anderson where he said that he was watching Steven Spielberg's The Post in 2017 and said, I can't wait to come back to this film any, uh, again and start to unpack it because all the frames are cluttered with all these people. And it, it just, the camera does this and goes there and it... And he was very just awe-inspired with Steven Spielberg's ability to maneuver the camera and do all the blocking. Well, uh, well, he did some good <laughs> studies because look at Licorice Pizza. I mean, it's it's remarkable. And I yeah. agree. And again, a lot of anxiety, especially in that truck scene. I saw it only once, oh, but I remember that. That was all done real. Eh? That was all done in camera. Nothing about uh, that was... It's cool. Yeah, and also all done by Alana Heim, who got a trucker's driver's license oh, for cool. this film. Yeah, but she's a cool girl. That's yeah. really really <laughs> clear. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I completely agree, and I also think that um, I read some some reviews of of some movies in preparation for today, and I people keep saying that his his films are very strange. Mm -hmm. That to me, I think, is a really weird criticism because I feel like they're they're pretty relatable. There's like stuff happening in there that if you know, have some feelings, mm. then you know, <laughs> you can just kind of connect to the material. To me, it isn't strange at all, really. Yeah, I, I, maybe I, that's I not forgot what I that meant, I've written down this, but actually, it, in response to that, it, his films often feel like celluloid dreams with the rough, rough edges of messy realities. Mm. That's pretty much what his films always have. So his characters are all over the place and completely scattered, but at the same time, they have this. Sorry to bring him up again, especially with Licorice Pizza. This Fellini-esque love of life <laughs> and, uh, and and done through celluloid dreaming. I mean, it, yeah. I, yeah, because I... Sorry, I'm not... Yeah, I'm, you I'm don't like the Fellini compare. No, no, that's not it. I'm, I'm, I'm also just uh, not very eloquent today. But Ayo, I feel like because he's, he's so technically... Um, great that you know he can have like these really chaotic characters because they're kind of uh, yeah. uh contained by this style somehow i don't know I, I i think i know what you mean i don't agree about that being a fellini thing oh but no it's, it's <laughs> as well it's in part it's mainly his own thing and oldman does it as well but i mean with fellini for me it's uh, it's like a scholarly thing an academic thing that then i refer to Sure, I did film B studies, but uh, yes, <laughs> but, uh, but for me, <laughs> like I would, uh, me, Data as the film scholar would would do that. Yes, I'm glad we found something to disagree and also about today. <laughs> one of the best soundtracks of last year, great to listen to. Oh. Nina Simone, and then at the end, Taj Mahal, and it's awesome. And only one track by Johnny Johnny Greenwood. 
Okay, what do we have for number two? Number two. Number two. Um, that's a good question. I guess I'll go with uh, There Will Be Blood. You had it in the script as well. I was almost going to say it for... But hey, tell us all about it. Um, I remember seeing it when it came out. Uh, and I saw it twice in the theater. I don't do that often. I know you do that when you love something. But yeah. I, I um, um, often make my peace with seeing it again. Um at home at some point. Anyway, I, I just wanted to go back and see it again. Um, I um, I don't know what to say. <laughs> uh, I, well, a different pace already from Punch Drunk Love. If you just finished Punch Drunk Love, if you would go chronologically through his um, um, filmography, then you started with There Will Be Blood. and Whereas Punch Drunk Love starts off with a car crash and all weird kind of sounds, then There Will Be Blood just starts up with these very screechy violins, the first collaboration with Johnny Greenwood. But the first part and of the film... And then it's 20 minutes of no dialogue. Yeah, but it also starts off very violent, really, because yeah. we have the whole incident with the thing, oh. and I'm not spoiling anything. No. But uh, I, I see a parallel here more than a difference. Uh, I There yeah. are parallels, oh, definitely. Yeah. But but the tone and the, the feeling all of a sudden wi with uh, uh, his first films it's a lot of Martin Scorsese in there mm. especially Boogie Scorsese. Nights which will we'll <laughs> Boogie Nights will get to because that's really Scorsese uh, all over um, and then all of a sudden with those kind of films later on it becomes haptic in a very different sense and that you're like all of a sudden you breathe the dust in and you feel the oil almost on your skin that's how there will be blood starts and it's awesome and 20 minutes without dialogue i think it's 20 minutes or 15 minutes or something it's awesome it's just a silent movie yeah it's and you get to know everything of backstory that you need to know without anybody explaining it to you I'm also a sucker for stories that have a protagonist that you don't actually really like. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I do kind of like him because he's just so... Um, um, God darn adorable. <laughs> yeah, what a what a cute little man. Um, he's so intense, you know, and it's just... Uh, I have a plot of land <laughs> and I will drink your milkshake. <laughs> I mean, it's a complete caricature, but I still buy it, and I think that's impressive. Uh, I yeah, I love yeah, it. I also love Paul Dano in this one. That's yeah, uh, that's yeah, another yeah, yeah. Paul Dano big is thing for awesome. me. And we're talking, of course, about Daniel Day Lewis, who is uh, oh yeah, his, sorry, uh, I just said he name? like everyone knows. Daniel Plainview, and sorry, he really rent into his role and. Mm -hmm. And apparently spoke with the accent that he had developed for this film. Yeah, Which if I do it, it's more like Sean Connery and in fact was Sean. But, but it was yeah, complete no. method acting, right? I, I think he just uh, lived like that for a little while. Your milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Um, yeah, yeah, very, very good, very good. But for instance, not as good as No Country for Old Men for from that year. And also not, because remember this. Roger Ebert wrote that, you know. What? The exact same thing. He said, it's not perfect. It's no country for old men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I disagree. I, I, I saw them both in the same week. Uh, and uh, this is the one I chose to see okay. again that week. But mm. I mean, I, I also love no country for old men. So, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't even really uh, want to make this comparison. Is, is but, uh, what, a, what a proof. And, and but, but remember, 2007 is like a weird year in cinema's history where the Western had three exquisite entries into the genre it's so true. this one no country for old men which is better and 
the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which is awesome, and it's the longest title. That's but but it's it's awesome, and nobody talks about that one. But go see all three of them and decide upon yourself because it's very hard to decide between these three. But whether it's it's all good, yeah. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. um, I don't have that much more to say about it, but I am very curious about your one and two. Uh, my number two, a lot of people will know this already, I oh, think. Yeah, we have so discussed so. this as well before on the podcast in a previous episode. I think on fashion? No, not on fashion. Or on couples that you wanted. I think it's episode number two. So it has to in be the history. It's Phantom, fa- Phantom Thread. thread. Yeah. <laughs> fashion and couples. Yes. That's yes. a good uh, tagline. Let's, <laughs> let's listen to some music. <laughs> Get it. Yeet. Okay. <laughs> I'm just enjoying this angelic moment, but that is um, doing something else. I don't know. <laughs> The reason why I'm not even talking that much is because we have discussed this in a previous rendition of the show in Dutch. So if you really want to listen to that, go and listen to that. I'm going to talk about the score now, just about the score. How about that? Okay. I just wanted to say that I think this is so sweet, but also so ominous. And that's really strange piece of music. It's cool, right? It's very good. Yeah. Oh, and well, they have a summary of the film again. I mean, uh, (laughs) what was it Mark Kermode wrote? It was like a a rose, a beautiful rose with a poisoned uh, uh, needle on the side. Uh, Thorn. Needle? Thorn. Hoppa. That's the word I'm going for. Um, Yeah, Johnny Greenwood is awesome. I mean, he, he started off... When he started off composing, he was influenced by Penderecki, whose music you know from The Shining, if you've seen it, who is a micro-polyphone tonalist or whatever the term is. And his idea is actually very much influenced by the avant-garde being in the now, all happening in the now. So if you listen to a composition by his, actually the composer prefers you not to listen to a recording because he wants the sounds to bounce in the room. So Johnny Greenwood, coming from Radiohead, brings his studio knowledge also to this. Not only does he start working on how can I record those bounces in the room and how can I do them with violins and everything, but at some point he got also the request by Paul Thomas Anderson, hey, we we need something more classical, we need something that has genuine romance and we need something to not sound niche or funny or anything. It needs to sound convincing and he, he... he walks on this this tightrope with a balancing act between all those factors, doing also some very avant-garde uh, stuff in there, and using, you could hear it only in the way the piano was recorded. It, it, I mean, all his recording as well. The studio is also an instrument, and he, I'm getting goosebumps as I'm talking about it. It's, it's awesome. It's film composition of the highest order, Phantom Thread. Data just rolled up his sleeves, and I can uh, actually yeah. corroborate this. <laughs> it's true. 
Yeah, it's it's so good, and I listen to this quite often. And I mean, it, it, if you then hear the soundtrack for Spencer, I mean, he wouldn't have pulled off Spencer in the way he did, which is pretty much maybe even better at, in some ways. But w- had it not been for the step in between, which was Phantom Thread, and and you were never really here came after, and then you were really your mind boggles. But that's a Johnny Greenwood rant because Johnny Greenwood is very important to Paul Thomas Anderson films, and he's very deserving of a rant. Oh yeah, and this film has some of the funniest quotes ever. Oh, uh, give me one. Uh, well, it's uh, what's what's her name again? Okay, do. do um. <laughs> So it's Leslie Manville, yes, that's the name I was going for. She's awesome. And then she says, I don't like to hear you talking because it hurts my ears. And that's Oh yeah, she's the she's the person running the business and his household and Yes. Yes, the very um (laughs) bug up her butt lady. No no, she's just cool. Okay, very cool. Yeah, she yes. used the best thing about the film. And you have Vicky Cripes and Daniel Day-Lewis. And they're all good. But Leslie Manville, ooh, she, 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 I mean, you know, the technique that Paul Thomas Anderson quite often used uh, uses is influenced by Silence of the Lambs and about uh, Jonathan Demi, that you just put a camera right up in the face and the character just looks off camera. It's not straight into it, but at least we are looking right to the character. Mm-hmm. And then you see this big close-up. And the close-ups on Leslie Manville in that film, uh, in that style, just, I mean, oh, they're they're telling and they're big. And wow, Leslie Manville. I do think there's a lot of surprising things in this movie because I remember reading about it for the first time. And I love fashion and I might Mm. make like big ball gowns for a hobby. I'm really bad at it, but it's what I love to do. And uh, I really like... um, uh, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis so when I read that there was gonna be this movie starring Daniel Day-Lewis as like a haute couture uh, uh, designer or whatever and then directed by Paul Thomas Anderson yeah. I was so happy but uh, I what I didn't expect was um, which elements I would like most about which turned out to be actually uh, Vicky Kriebs is that yeah, how you say that? Oh. She, she's from Belgium I think Luxembourg um, oh Luxembourg okay yeah. uh, and uh, <laughs> it's a uh, it's kind of a daunting task to uh, act first opposite well. Daniel Day Lewis, but it's just she is uh, she's not acting; she's just there. No, and no, everything's real about it. It's so it's yeah. beautiful. Oh, and yeah, no. I, I if you haven't seen it, just go see it. Now that I'm talking I, about it, I, I know that now we're getting almost into fight, but th- that's just a model of perfection. A film like Phantom Thread. That's that's right on the money. It's on Prime Video. I agree, and uh, I don't mind you saying that at all. <laughs> cool. <laughs> go for so, it. Uh, <laughs> script, script, script. Yeah, we were doing uh, uh, number two. Number yes. Uh, four cents on number two, it says. Okay, so tell me about your favorite. That, well, th- let's do it the other way around. Tell me about your favorite, Caroline. My favorite? Paul, Paul Thomas, Thomas Anderson. Anderson film in the world. Again, I can't choose one. But I want to talk about Boogie Nights. Ooh. Uh, and what I love about it, for example, is the opening scene. And it starts like this.
Yeah, what you guys don't see is a very good dancing Carolina sitting here at the uh, table. And uh, lip syncing. Yeah, tell <laughs> me about this scene, Carol. <laughs> um, well, one thing PTA does is uh, uh, really long takes. And uh, this is, uh, I think, a four-minute one, maybe. Um, what, what happens is uh, the film starts. We see a neon sign saying boogie. It's uh, the, the front of a nightclub. And the camera starts to swerve and swirl. And we see a car driving up to the nightclub. And um, Burt Reynolds comes out. That's yeah. a good surprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Louis Guzman is in front of this, his own club, and uh, he welcomes him with uh, much gusto, him and uh, Julianne Moore. And they walk in, and they have a little talk, and, uh, you know, a lot happens. They're directed to their table, and then Heather Graham rolls by because she plays Roller Girl, a girl who never takes off her roller skates, and she's on the dance floor. And all the while, this song is playing, and Don Cheadle talks about his cowboy costume. And then, <sighs> you know... Slowly, we um, uh, <laughs> swerve around to Mark Wahlberg, who is collecting some uh, plates and whatever because he's a dishwasher at the nightclub. <laughs> and Burt Reynolds uh, um, sees him, and he plays a uh, Burt Reynolds plays a uh, porn director, mm -hmm. and he sees some potential in the very yeah. young, fresh, um, well endowed Mark Wahlberg's character Eddie something. Favorite quote of the film? Go for it. Oh, It's I my big dick, and I got to decide what to do with it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's way up there. <laughs> yeah. I always like how, how Boogie Nights is, in a way, shamelessly ripping off Goodfellas. But it's so weird, because it just works like a gem. But it's it's literally in its setup, it's good a Goodfellas, but porn. Mm. Paul Thomas Anderson, a lot of his films play out with characters who enter a exist in a moment in history of transition, like anything. It's always in transition. But for instance, um, Boogie Nights happens where during both the golden age of porn and right after, and it's about the transition, not a rise and fall. Really, it's just like about. The master is right after the war, and a navy soldier comes back home. And in, I'll keep the other example for later because that's my number one. But he, there will be a blood. Twilight Zone. A Western uh, world without law that Slowly started to get moving. law and money because of oil. It's about those. So Boogie Nights follows Goodfellas in that you have the seventies where the golden age is and then the 80s start and coke and everything and it starts to go haywire and then the the, the style of the film starts to follow it and the the, the well the, the set piece in martin scorsese's film with the helicopter and the saws that's pretty much mimicked in tone at least with the weird fireworks scene and stuff <laughs> like you can you can really lay a parallel but i mean it, and even though it's shamelessly ripping it off i mean even the, the closing shot of boogie nights is raging bull but I and think even though that's 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 completely happening, at the same time you're it's wildly original, and you're like there you go, and that opening shot is just there to prove it all because my god, that's a camera that does everything. That's incredible. It's like Gaspar Noé but disco. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what a joy. Anyway, uh, I think you were going a bit much into detail for some of our listeners, but that doesn't really matter. Yeah. yeah um, the yeah. reason I chose Boogie Nights is Sorry. because. Uh, no, Joey, you, 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 you're Don't apologize. I no, I, 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 I enjoy hearing you rant about uh, Scorsese. Uh, <laughs> that is Scorsese. Um, I, well, 
for one, I, it's just I love disco uh, in the late seventies, early eighties. It's just an era that I adore, and I, I he just makes it look so good, and uh, I love being there. Um, I also think it's extremely impressive to make a movie about. Uh, porn that is so unsexy <laughs> like there's uh, a bunch of sex scenes in there but um yeah yeah i mean it does nothing for me maybe that's uh, me but i just uh, feel like the characters are also uh complicated and also a bit tragic uh, that uh, you know you don't want to be there that's maybe my only criticism of the film i feel like it makes sex workers look um and like stereotypically unhappy and, and troubled which i think is a bit mm. unfair but you know for the story it works um i guess because uh it's a drama after all. This is my um, second to least favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film. And I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I like how we never choose the same thing. Yeah, no, no, really. But, but with Boogie Nights, I mean, uh, the, the better stuff comes later for me. Mm. Uh, but yeah, no, Boogie Nights is really good. And it's really funny. And Julianne Moore in particular is, is mind-blowing. I don't think I've ever seen her as good as in Boogie Nights. I but I agree. still have a lot yeah. of Julianne Moore to see again. So. so she plays a more senior character. And obviously not a senior senior because in 97 she was, I don't know, in her 30s. 30s mm. maybe but uh um senior in the sense that she kind of plays a, a mom for a lot of yeah. the people in the film uh and you want to uh, be my baby <laughs> <laughs> she takes care of people uh and at the same time she has to be like really seductive and stuff because she's also an adult film actress and that um, yes. that combination and also like how that plays out in her face and there's like this whole storyline about her losing custody of her kid and stuff there is a lot yeah. in that part yeah. and uh, i think she does it that, uh, that, amazingly that's for me the problem with boogie nuts and in parts also with magnolia it's almost just uh, like take a chill pill and I, it's with magnolia it coming works. from you that's yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> with boogie nights <laughs> no I've, with boogie nights it's it's a complete mayhem as well and it's very very enjoyable at some point i did start maybe a little bit watching the clock and i don't know if it's i have seen it only once so i'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm completely open to some uh, Paul Thomas, I've, I've t told you before, they always do something different to me. So That's very not much change. not me. I also, what I like about these ensemble stories, when done well, you can kind of see how all these people ended up together and how you need mm. to be like uh, compatible in your uh, yeah. dysfunction or something to become like this fucked up family that, that Boogie Nights um, shows us. And uh, I think that works really well. I also think he takes enough time with every character and also writes them well yeah. enough that yeah. you just and see directs them well I feel like I mean, Philip Seymour definitely. Hoffman has three lines feeling wise and he's one of the most well-rounded characters in uh, his uh, even. When it's annoying, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, Romantic comedies, um, Love Actually, or whatever. I, I, I like Love Actually, but it's not very good, I think. And that's because I think in a lot of these storylines that has that have so many characters, uh, there's bound to be some that that just aren't you know convincing. They're too too yeah. D because there isn't enough time to develop them or something. Somehow he pulls it off, even with a few minutes of screen time, and I think that's a big part of the genius. Yeah. Awesome. My number one is Inherent Vice. Well, big surprise. Everybody is 
raving, pulling their oh hair my out. God. Nobody expected that Data would finally get no. an episode where he would be able to talk about inherent vice. Incredible. Vibes. So, okay, here's the deal. <laughs> I always say this to people. The best film out there is La Dolce Vita. And my favorite film, and the film that I've seen the most... I'm raising my eyebrows. ...is Inherent Vice. Mm. Inherent Vice, I must have seen it 30 times already, I think. Oh, my God. This is also one of the few films where I have nostalgia back to 2014 when I saw it the first time. And let me explain you a bit about what this film means to me. I think this film was my entry into cinema. Like, just that's, that's the beginning point. Okay, that's important. Trace it back... I think I pretty much almost fell asleep during the first time that I saw it as well uh, <laughs> because it's such a weird story. So it's even weirder that I started to love it even more. But it, it came out and I didn't know anything about film really. Had you read the book before? No, uh, I have in the meanwhile. And it's also one of my favorite books uh, of all time. So I, I tend to think of this as sort of the story of my life, which is about a hippie private detective in 1970s uh, LA. Again, a period of transition because he is a hippie coming from that community, but Charles Manson just has happened. Mm -hmm. So the public opinion starts to shift. There's a lot of paranoia coming in. Uh, in the book, uh, there is one description of what happens to LA at the time, which which the film perfectly mimics almost in, in tone. And it's that, that Doc Sportello, who is played by Joaquin in the film, sits in the back of the car and uh, thinks about all the concerts that he has been to, all the big festivals of the late 60s, where all those people came together and enjoyed the same moment and the same music. And he looks out of his car window and sees a room where three people are all wearing headphones and all listen to other music dancing in a different way. And how fucking weird is that? That's pretty much his deal. And, and, and a very apt description of a postmodern paranoid society, which has just been... Also, well, drugs start to get out of hand. Everything is on the fringe of falling and, and, and everything is covered at night within this fog in L.A. And, and there is a mystery in the fog. It's almost Stephen King-esque, but, but, but not with monsters. Isn't the mystery just boatloads of LSD? No. <laughs> <laughs> Just no, wondering. But, uh, weed. A lot of weed. Mm. And and that's it. so the story is it's it's pretty much uh if you've seen uh if you've seen Raymond Chandler's work uh on film, you have The Big Sleep, which was the first film that had a film noir which had a deliberately incomprehensible plot. Mm. That was translated by Robert Altman. There we have him again. Uh, to The Long Goodbye in the 70s. You get The Big Lebowski later on. Which is uh, really the first slacker noir, as they call it. And this is also a slacker noir, which follows The Big Lebowski and improves on it. And it's really based on Thomas Pynchon's work in the sense that even though... Paul Thomas Anderson really knows dialogue and everything. He chose to not do any of his own dialogue and instead just copy pretty much the book. But if you copy it in full, then it would be unworkable. And uh, Thomas Pynchon is a, falling back on last time's episode, is a, a, an author who is notoriously hard to uh, adapt to film. And this is pretty much the first, I think this is the first film adaptation of Pynchon's work. And it's it's beautiful. I, for and one, was grateful for it because uh, I, I remember trying mm. to read and hear advice before my English was ready, basically. And yeah, uh, I oh got yeah. confused. And yeah. uh, um, I just let it go for a while. Somebody gave it to me for my birthday. And uh, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll circle back to this. <laughs> Maybe if I get a little bit more proficient. And then the movie came out and it was like... 
oh, that was what was happening. Like, I yeah. now f- understand the spatial relations in this scene. Yeah, it's spatial. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's also where you're reading it as well. There's one scene with LSD where you, I, I ended up a bit high after reading it. That's the effect that the prose has. But this film does something similar. I mean, it's it's a deliberately incomprehensible plot. It, it, so it's, it doesn't have a high grade on IMDb, for instance. Mm. Uh, some critics liked it, some didn't. It's very divisive. And I just love it to bits. I think it is really one of the most spectacular pieces of filmmaking out there. It has won the Robert Altman Award. There we have him again. Again, also the best award of film out there. And it truly deservedly so, because in the beginning, for instance, you have one 